Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. Dear Young Rocker, There is a lot in this installment of your story, so I'll keep it short. There's always an uncomfortable adjustment after leaving something that used to rule your days. Whether it was a relationship, a job, or a yoga cult. It happens even if the thing was toxic and it was the right decision to leave. Your brain needs time to rewire itself to make decisions without that all-encompassing element. People who get out of formerly all-consuming relationships often feel like they can't possibly handle being alone for one minute after the breakup and jump much too quickly right into another one. Because that uncomfortable adjustment period feels like it's too much for them. It really feels like it will never end. But it does. To me, that discomfort is a good sign. It's like your leg that went to sleep after sitting on it too long is waking up, and you're feeling those aching pins and needles. It's not a good feeling in itself, but it means that your body is healing, getting the oxygen it needs. Your brain has to do that too when you've shut it off and just followed the directions of someone else for a while. Give it some time, and it won't hurt at all anymore. Plus, you'll be you again. I'm laying in my bed in my dorm room, staring at the window. Sometimes the curtain moves a little when the wind picks up. I can hear the raindrops outside. Now that I only have three classes and no job and no yoga cult either, I have all this free time, but it makes me feel weird. I don't know if it's the free time or just me. I can't ever seem to study or write anything, and I just feel too tired all the time to go out and do anything, unless Aaron takes me somewhere. And I mean anything. It's like, I can't decide, and I get paralyzed and stuck here. Today, I decided I'm just going to stay inside all day, so that I have nothing to be anxious about. If I don't even try, then I don't have to feel bad about doing nothing, I figured. I laid around in bed, but I couldn't really sleep. I was just tossing and turning, even though I'm exhausted, like I've been every day, because I can't sleep at night ever. So then I got up and sat in front of my bookshelf and looked at all the books. I thought of how each book would make me feel to read it as I looked at the titles and tried to pick one. I picked out a few, but I couldn't decide on just one, so I decided to read a few sentences of each until I felt like I found one I wanted to stick with. But each time, within one or two sentences, I keep feeling like 
this isn't right. It's not the right book. It's making me feel more tight, and I can't concentrate, so I'll try another one. And eventually, I'm just sitting on the floor in my room with a pile of books around me, and none of them making me feel better at all. So I crawled back into my bed, and now I'm trying to think of, like, anything that would make me feel better, and I can't. I even tried crying, hoping it would be some kind of a release, but I couldn't do that either. Nothing feels right. I think about how it feels to go for a hike, and that doesn't make me imagine feeling better. And I think about getting some waffle fries or mozzarella sticks from my favorite place, and even that doesn't sound good for some reason. When I think of the possibility that I might live for dozens more years, it seems truly impossible. I really feel like it's probably going to end sooner rather than later. I just won't live long. I know it deep down. I can feel it in my bones. I can't imagine living for years and years and years and years. But then again, I'm not even sure that I'm alive anymore already. A day with dad. It's a Saturday and I'm six years old. Mom's working the evening shift. She gets home after midnight, so dad stays over the house. I'm reading my essay aloud and trying to keep my voice from shaking, but it's hard. I'm trying so hard not to shake that I keep holding my breath and my voice sounds even whinier when I run out of air. In between paragraphs, I try to suck in as much air as I can without making a wheezing noise. Every time I breathe, I look down at Andre's cowboy boots on the edge of his desk. I like Andre. He looks different than other professors, with his combed hairstyle and fancy boots, and he talks different than any professor I've ever had, too. Like a real person who hasn't missed out on life reading books and sitting around a university trying to look academic. I wonder what he'll think of my essay. I can't let myself think of what the other people in the class will think of my writing. Or look at them. No way. My essay is called A Day with Dad. When I signed up for this essay writing class, I actually thought it was going to be about how to write essays for, like, philosophy or history classes. But we're learning more about personal essays, which is a thing I didn't really know about before. Creative writing, but it isn't fiction, even though it sounds like it. I didn't know that was a thing I could do until I did it. I read the part about how my dad never hugged me or kissed me as a little kid. And then the part when I was five and I found some porn and it made me feel really weird and gross. And I tried to draw the picture to figure out how the people were connected. And then the part about how my mom told me he was so scared when I was born that he couldn't be around my mom. And she thinks he was with another woman. So she was alone in the hospital and almost died because the nurses weren't paying attention to her and left her alone in the shower for hours 
when she was exhausted from over 24 hours of labor. But I made sure to put in parts about why I like my dad, too, so that it wouldn't be all bad. I'm not trying to make him look bad. Like how we used to fly model airplanes together, and how he let me drive an army jeep he had around the backyard, and how I'd follow him around his garage and watch him fix old trucks and play dress-up with all the military stuff in there, and how, even now, the smell of gasoline and motor oil makes me feel happy and safe. About how he's super smart in science and math, and made me always want to be that way too. And how I liked when he'd tickle me with his hands that are so big they look like baseball mitts. I look around the room when I'm done, because no one's saying anything, and usually people give feedback to each other right away. But it's totally quiet. I see that this sort of chubby guy who sits to my left has tears in his eyes. While I'm waiting for feedback, my mind wanders to the last time I was in this building. How Aaron and I were bored walking around on a holiday when no one was on campus and decided to check out the basement in here. We found out it has a locker room that we thought was abandoned, and Aaron determined it was an ideal romantic spot. But 30 seconds into defiling the place, we heard the softball team start piling in. Thankfully, there was a back door for us to run out of. I finally look up from my desk at Andre, and he's just looking at me like he wants to say something, but can't think of how to say it. And his eyes look watery, too. Beautiful, he says. Please read the letter I wrote you. Then he turns to the rest of the class. Details, people. She knows how to use them. A few people tell me it made them feel sad, but that isn't helpful. What I need to know is whether the writing was good or bad. What should I change? This isn't therapy, geez. Don't these people know how to separate a piece of writing from real life? Mostly, they just look at me or down at their desks. When I get outside, I take a deep breath of Lowell air. I look at the copy of my essay Andre had handed me. He's written wow on it a bunch of times, wherever I had descriptions of stuff. I flip to the last page and find his letter to me. You're a real writer, it says. My stomach turns so hard, I can't finish reading the whole thing. I take a long route back toward my dorm and stop on a few benches to look at the words again. Writer. It makes me feel buzzy every time I look at that word. Writer. Not musician. Writer. Storyteller. I've never called myself a writer or attached any meaning to that word. So why does it feel so intense just to think it? It's like... Maybe I've always known that's what I am, but no one ever told me, so I only knew it in the back of my mind, not the front. 
My whole life, I've always constantly been narrating a story in my head, no matter what I'm doing, and trying out different ways of telling it. Stories have always been taking up so much of my brain, trying to burst out of me, but I've just kept them inside. It's just part of me. I just thought I was weird. Like, just a person with too much going on in their head, living in a daydream instead of out in the world. But now I know what I really am. A writer. Huh. So, is this new? The psychiatrist asks me and points at my right hand. I look down at my fingers, tapping like I'm playing a very fast piano solo on the arm of the chair. Uh, no. I feel kind of glad because I wanted him to notice. I mean, anxiety made me jittery before, but this is new. Before, I felt an angry, restless... Everything feels wrong, and I want to rip off this invisible, spiky thing that won't leave me alone type of jittery. And now, on my third week of Prozac, I just feel like I physically cannot stop moving. It feels good and irritating at the same time. I wake up really early now instead of sleeping all morning, and I have to just lay in bed and do this little dance with my feet and legs for a while to get out the jitters. And sometimes I can go back to sleep for a minute, and sometimes I can't. Before, I was worried about my heart always pumping fast, and now I almost enjoy it. Like, it's internal exercise. I just had a Dunkin' iced coffee too, and now my mind is racing with ideas of more essays and stories I want to write. And I imagine how amazing they'll be. Like, I can see all of them, in full, from beginning to end in my mind. And I get pumped thinking about the feeling it will give the readers, and how they'll think my writing is the most clever, emotionally resonant thing they've ever read. I'm going to write books and movie screenplays, and they'll be so complex and incredibly detailed and I'll start winning prizes. Maybe I'll even get the Pulitzer one day, even though I'll still be totally humble. I'll definitely write an album too. I mean, at least one. I'm destined for greatness. But only me and Andre Debuse III know it. So, how are you feeling? The psychiatrist butts into my dream to ask. Great. Okay. We'll continue onward then. I jump out of the chair and try to stop myself from skipping all the way to North Campus to my philosophy of art and beauty class. I get there early. The kid who sits next to me, Dave, is already there. I missed the last German class because I didn't feel like I could sit still in my chair long enough to listen to our stuttering teacher go through conjugations and Dave is in the class with me. I think he's kind of cute. Sort of punk-looking with a buzzed head and a nose ring. I wonder if he plays music. I wave at him to ask what the homework is. I say, Dave, Dave, Dave. And he finally turns his head. What? 
He says like he has no idea what I'm talking about. What was the German homework? Oh, I don't know. I didn't go. He immediately turns his head right back like I already don't exist anymore. Okay, well, so much for making a new friend. The professor comes in holding the book we're reading, The Architecture of Happiness. I want to raise my hand the entire discussion. This book moved me and made me realize I'm not crazy for feeling sad and awful when I look at the lifeless buildings on this campus and how sometimes the arrangement of a certain room can make me feel like everything's going to be okay as soon as I step into it. The professor puts the Mondoran painting, Composition 2 in red, blue, and yellow, up onto the projector and asks if it seems like it was easy to make this and why it should be so famous and worth money for just a few colored squares. Why isn't it just a pattern on a pillow at Walmart? Then he goes through a few slides where someone has taken the painting and made one or another of the squares slightly larger or smaller or a different color or moved them around. None of them make me feel good or look right. Some of them make me feel completely sad. I almost have to raise my hand to tell him to skip the one with too much blue. We spend the rest of the class discussing, and I can tell some people don't believe it or care. Wow, I can't imagine how much easier life must be when colors and sounds don't pull at your emotions. Ah, the pain of the artiste. Back in my room, I sit down at my desk, and my leg starts bopping up and down. I pick up my bass and start running through the song from memory. I feel like today's the day to finally record the video I've been trying to make. Usually, when I start recording, I mess up, but I think I've got I Want You Back down. I've spent a lot of hours practicing this one. The bass line is harder than I thought it would be, but it's just so freaking good that it's worth it. Every time I mess up, I just want to do it again immediately until it's right. Unlike writing, I know where I'm going. I just have to push to get there. It feels good to have a goal and move closer to it. It's a good amount of finger stretching for me. I figured out how to have this sort of loose feel in my hand, like I'm rolling a ball around the fretboard to get all the notes quickly enough. My right hand is faster now from my year as a music major. I've even gotten down the hardest part, the fast arpeggio in the bridge. You wouldn't really even hear it if you aren't a bass player. But God, this line is a jam. When this song comes on in stupid Walgreens or wherever, I still always feel moved by it. Like literally moved by the bass line itself. It's what I sing along to when I hear it. It lifts up the lyrics in this way. I just, I don't know. It's like euphoric, I guess. It's like that Mondorant painting. I can't explain why, but it just feels perfect. When I start recording the video, I purposely have my hair in front of my shoulders and then flip it over my back. It's gotten so long that it even gets stuck in my belt sometimes. 
When I'm done with the video, I upload it on YouTube. I wonder what people will think. I walk into the practice room with my bass and little practice amp with its four tiny speakers that somehow make it louder than any other bass practice amp I've heard before. Frank and Nick are already in there. Neither of them says hi to me. I remember how Frank kept dropping his cell phone and the battery kept falling out and it seemed like he really wasn't smart enough to think to just put some tape on the thing last time. And there was this weird disconnect when we talked. Like, he couldn't quite get anything I was saying. Maybe he smokes a lot of weed or something. I have no interest in him as a friend. Nick is just painfully shy or something. He doesn't seem to talk to anyone. Finally, I am playing with two guys who I know for sure I will not end up dating. I first met Frank one day in the dorm common room when I was hanging out down there with my roommate, Frida. They are both super Greek. I saw that Frank had a guitar with him, and we talked about music, and he said he was trying to start a band. When he said he was really into the Pixies, I was on board. I sit down and plug in. Nick counts off and I start playing the song Frank had showed me last week when we met by ourselves. It's really easy. I only have to play, like, four notes. I do kind of like the songs he writes. The chord changes are nice. They definitely make me feel a certain kind of way. I can get on board with it, but the tempos are all pretty slow. I will probably get bored in this band, but... At least it's a band. I really want to be in a punk band and get out all this pent-up jittery stuff by jumping around. It's funny how sometimes I thought my high school band was so annoying, but now I miss it so much. I guess it was pretty fun, even with all the drama I caused. Huh. It feels good to be doing what I know how to do. Laying down the bass notes, being the solid rhythm, and letting the guitar and drums do stuff on top of it. Nick's a really good drummer. He does interesting things with little fills here and there that don't take away from the song, but keeps it really steady. And I follow him and subtly throw in some extra notes too. This is so much easier than making a dumb jazz walking line feel like I'm owning it. For once, I'm okay with sitting in one place. James and I drove up here to this guitar center in Nashua because we were both bored. I haven't seen him a whole lot since I started the Dawn thing and the Aaron thing. But here we are, sitting together, playing basses like no time has passed. At school, he's usually with other music majors, and I feel so embarrassed to be around them. Like, I have a giant 
music major dropout tattoo on my forehead. They probably don't actually see me that way, but I know they must wonder what happened. And besides, all they talk about is music professors and ensembles and jazz songs and the other music majors. All this stuff that I can't contribute to. So I gave up and relegated myself back to Loserville. I pretty much just eat stuff from the grocery store in my room now to avoid the calf. Once again, I don't belong really anywhere. Again, I'm invisible, or maybe I only exist inside my own mind. It's hard to tell if I'm real. I thought by now, as a somewhat adult, that I'd finally feel like a real person instead of a bunch of ideas stuck inside a prison somewhere that can't get out. But I don't. I might graduate for the second time without being anyone again. Why isn't the Prozac stopping these thoughts? Jeez. I tell my brain to shut up. You're with another person right now, you dummy, I say to myself. It is nice to be with my one friend. We're both playing basses we can't afford. He asks me what happened to the band I was starting. I tell him how Frank never heard back from the kid who was drumming with us, Nick. He tried to find another drummer, and then at some point, he just completely stopped texting me, too. I shrug at James. We go back to noodling around on the bases. An old guy walks over and watches us for a while. It feels weird having this guy looking at us, so we both look up at him. He looks at me, points to James, and says, Did he teach you to play that? I feel my eyes rolling back into my skull. Are you friggin' kidding? I think I could punch the guy. I can't get any words out. James is offended on my behalf. He lets out a this-is-absurd kind of chuckle and says to the guy, Uh, nope, she's been playing bass longer than me, sir. God, this crap never ends. I think back to the time when I was a freshman that I drove to this store by myself because I was thinking of getting a new bass. I saw a bass at the top of the wall I really liked the look of, but I couldn't see the brand or the price tag. I liked the curve of the body. It looked comfortable and lightweight, and I imagined it would feel nice in my hands. I asked a kid working there to get it down for me. He reminded me of John Smith from high school with his baggy black pants and wallet chain. He climbed up, and as he handed the bass down to me, he said, Who is this for? I said, Uh, me? He seemed weirded out and said, Yeah, well, sometimes people buy bases for other people. I'm very clearly not a mom or someone with money. People still think I look like I'm in high school, so that didn't make me any less angry or make any sense. I snap back to reality and tell James, This place sucks. Yep, he says. We decide there's too many creepy grandpas in here, so it's time to peace out. I put the ridiculous pointy warlock base back in its stand.
Dear Young Rocker, let's start with what you said way back at the beginning of this episode about feeling like there's no way you could possibly live much longer because you can't imagine it. Sorry to tell you, it will always feel this way. Funny enough, a friend actually texted me not too long ago. Sometimes I feel like I've had all the experiences I'm ever going to have and life is an endless cycle of working and sleeping, and it makes me depressed. What I told her was, well, I feel this way too, and I think we feel it for the simple fact that memory works backwards and not forwards. You can't picture the future because it hasn't happened yet. It's really that basic. Everyone feels this way sometimes especially when you think about things that are years and years ahead. There will be goals you set for the future, super long-term ones, and they will seem like there's no way they will ever really happen. For instance, I have a goal to buy a house by the time I'm 40, so I have nine years to figure out how to do that. Saying it still sounds literally impossible from my current situation. Renting a dumpy house, living with roommates, and having been underemployed my entire adult life. I still feel like I will always be too young and too broke to buy a house. And on top of it, just the idea that I will live nine more years of days, do that much boring work in order to pay my rent, have to cook that many dinners, and most of them won't be that great, have to do my laundry that many times and fold the same damn shirt over and over and put it back in the same drawer, have to suffer through painful and boring and crappy moments for that long, and then maybe finally get a house and then do... Who knows, like potentially another 60 entire years of all that slogging life stuff afterwards? Whoa. It really seems depressing to think about. Until I remember that all my friends feel this way too. And that pretty much everyone does. Except for maybe those special people who have everything handed to them. But even they probably feel that way about whatever it is they have to do all day. If life is cake all the time, you get sick of it. You need the broccoli days to make the cake days worth it. So just remember that the next time you're thinking about the giant pile of broccoli you have to consume over the next 60, 70, or 80 years. Like, I know that when you started kindergarten, you couldn't imagine making it to fifth grade. That seemed impossible at the time. Or when you started high school, it really felt like you'd never finish. But one day, you just do. And one day, you're like, oh, I'm 31, like me. I had no intention of making it to my 30s. Oops. Don't beat yourself up for feeling less good now than you did when you were in Don Yoga. It makes sense you felt good there. Because look, when you sing, 
and you move to a rhythm and dance, and you breathe in and out with your movement, you feel good. For you, this is when you feel your best. That's why Dawn got you. That's also why playing in a band is so important to you. Moving to music and breathing is one of the only things that lowers your crippling anxiety. And it does it better than Prozac. Plus, it has no side effects. Dawn made you feel almost as good as the last time you played in a band. And on top of it, gave you the feeling that you were supposed to be there. That you belonged somewhere and someone wanted you around. It's hard to feel that way in college. Everyone with any kind of anxiety feels like they're in the dark, randomly aiming for goals, not sure what's the right path, struggling to choose classes and majors, and worrying their choices will be wrong. The sense that you have one path and you're on it is an amazing relief, and Dawn gave you that. You are feeling as good as it gets. You are secure. A feeling you almost never have and that some lucky ducks are born feeling and feel all of their lives. I can't say it's a feeling that will ever come naturally to you, but music will always be involved whenever you do get the chance to experience it. And for the thousandth time, you are on the right path and you are not doing it wrong. Mistakes are natural, and you will learn from all of them. For instance, you shouldn't have assumed so quickly that Frank was your only chance to play in a band, and went back so quickly to believing you'd be a friendless no one for the rest of college. I understand why you feel weird around the music majors. It's mostly your own guilt, which you shouldn't have, by the way, because... Like you told yourself when you dropped the major, you certainly can still play music without making it your job. But if you hung around them and kept your ears perked a little bit, you might have at least found more opportunities to play with people. And there are non-music majors you could play with too. Who knows what would have happened if you didn't retreat back to lonerdom so quickly. And you were right. That guy Dave in your philosophy class, he does play music. He's a drummer. But being alone is your safe space. It's in your nature, and that's okay. It's all okay. That's the point. Take care, kid. Next time on Dear Young Rocker, young Chelsea makes a new friend and finds a creative solution to a difficult problem. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. This show was written and created by me, Chelsea Erson. I also wrote the theme song, I record and edit the episodes, and I create many of the musical pieces and sound effects you hear in the show. The other half of our two-person production team is Colin Fleming, 
who provides more sound design and music and also mixes the episodes. I would also love if you would join me on Instagram at Dear Young Rocker and follow Double Elvis too. I also have Facebook and Twitter, and I just really love hearing stories and seeing pictures of your own awkward young rocker beginnings. So please dig up an old picture and tag me, and I will definitely reshare it. And please, please share this story with anyone, anyone who has a young rocker in their life who you think could be touched by this, because that's the whole point. And write a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show, because that goes far toward the goal of helping kids feel less alone, too. Thank you. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.